This is one of the most challenging intros I've ever had to do. Hello friends, Shara Carruthers here and you are listening to the Live Like You Love Yourself podcast. If you haven't already heard, I'd like to gently pass on the news that my dear friend and podcast host, Maria Kirsten, passed away a little more than a week ago on April 20th, 2021. She's left behind a beautiful, loving family and an ocean of friends, students, and admirers from near and far. And as with her life, her death has touched so many, many of whom I've heard from personally. And a big thank you to those who've so thoughtfully reached out to me with your prayers and condolences and words of solidarity and support. Maria was a force of nature as is so evident by the way that her passing has touched our local community and communities around the globe. She was a strong and beautiful woman, teacher, mother, and friend. And her light will continue to burn on within the hearts and minds of everyone that she taught, befriended, or shared a conversation with. For my part, I feel a tremendous amount of gratitude for having had the opportunity to know her so quickly and so deeply and to have had the sheer joy of regularly diving into the subjects that touched both of our hearts. From the very beginning, we were both so excited about creating this podcast, about having the chance and a reason to talk together about things we, that we love or were, were puzzled about or had some real opinions on. And in fact, our original plan for this podcast was for it to be primarily a dialogue between the two of us. And so we started by recording interviews of each other, Maria interviewing me and me interviewing Maria about our lives and our origins and how we found yoga in the first place. And by the time we worked out where we really wanted to go with the podcast, we decided that we would clear the slate and begin again. So many of those original conversations were never published. In light of Maria's passing and of the fact that there are so many out there who might have questions about who she was and how she came to do what she was so powerfully doing in the world, I wanted to share with you the interview that I did with Maria about her life, motivations, and journey. It's yet another inspiring look at another side of her, and I have to tell you, I am so glad we did it. And so please enjoy this conversation that I had with my beautiful friend and teacher, Maria Kirsten. Okay, right. Okay, well, it's Shara Carruthers here, and I am here with Maria Kirsten. Very excited. Today I get the chance to ask Maria all the questions I've been dying to ask her since I met her and to find out a little bit about her life and how she has come, where she's come from and how she's arrived, where she has arrived today. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for joining me today. <laughs> it's fun to, to sit in the other seat after, after, after our first one. Yeah. yeah. So Maria, okay, let's just, let's dive in. Cause I really want to understand your origins, your where you've come from, and and how you've made it to this place. So, where did you grow up? Let's start there. Yeah, and it's how one of those? Yeah, because I'm a kind of an immigrant. Um, there's a history of immigration. So I was yeah. actually born in the Bahamas. Oh, really? To a German dad and an English mom, uh -huh. 
who my dad was a shipbroker. Anyway, they eventually, we moved to New York when I was one, uh-huh. and I grew up in New York City, which almost feels like a lie now. Like, no one amazing. grows up in New York City. Yeah, no, I grew up in Manhattan. <laughs> like... We lived a block from Bloomingdale's. Wow. And, yeah. So I, you know, I had a nice little existence yeah. there. Um, and what was that like? Well, in one way, you were when we interviewed you, you were talking about um, being a little bit feeling on the outside, yeah. and it was the same. I mean, I went to private school. I had a nice, nice little upbringing, but I had a dad who grew up in World War II, yeah. and I had a mum who was born in Baghdad, lived in whose dad was in the colonial service. He ended oh, wow. up being the chief justice of the Bahamas. Uh-huh. So I really had European parents. Yeah. I, I didn't live in America, and so... They didn't know the rules. And I was the first kid. So it was like they didn't know the stuff you need to know to bring up kids. So mm-hmm. they they knew a little more when my brothers came through. But it was always like, oh, you know, we were always a little bit behind or out. or And they brought us up a different way. Yeah. I mean, other kids would just go to the fridge and take what they want. And we didn't, you don't, you don't really access the house that way or play in the living room. Or it's a little more formal, a little more... Yeah. Did that speak more to their upbringing? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, and they, they loved us a lot, but it was just strict and it wasn't American. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It is. So and, so we didn't have, like, my dad doesn't follow sports. Yeah. You know, there's just <laughs> things that my friends, parents, and so there was always a little bit of a feeling of being slightly different. Yeah. But I think everybody feels like that to a certain degree. Yeah. And, yeah. and how did you wear that as a kid? Like, was that something that you was, that was always felt very much there in the space for you? I think as a kid and right up kind of through, I was a fairly happy child, I guess, but a little bit mildly dissociated kind of, just sort of, I felt like everybody else got the rule book on things and I didn't really. Mm -hmm. I had friends. I was not popular at school, but I, in grade school, Mm -hmm. maybe more in high school, but, uh, yeah, no, I just was happy enough, but I was um, just didn't really know. I didn't feel like I got the rule book like everybody else did. Yeah. Whereas I look at my kids, they get it. Yeah. They know what's going on. They always knew it. They yeah. had the rule book. So I don't know what that was. I don't quite know. But I was more clueless than unhappy, if yeah. you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I just never really had farsight. I always was doing just what was in front of me. Yeah. And I was a pretty unco, hypermobile <laughs> kid. So I think part of my strict upbringing was to just uh, give no resistance. Right. And yeah, it only felt like yoga's woken me up. I guess is really eventually that it's it's hard to explain. But yeah. it, you know, happy. I, you wouldn't say I was an unhappy child, but I was probably a little bit of a. We were nervous. We had to kind of. Did that come from your parents? And and yeah, I guess own... they were quite strict, and and I think I mean they loved us a lot, but yeah. it, there was there were other rules, and there was a formality about it. Yeah, and I think uh, they weren't happy, so that was also kind of there. Right, yeah. they weren't and happy that, with each other, or they weren't happy were in with their... each other eventually. I yeah. mean, you know, anyway, that's a big complicated sure. story. But it's it's uh, in the end, they we my dad left when when I was nine, so yeah. I think that there was that feeling yeah. of that. But I had no. I was really close to my two brothers, and really close to my two brothers. So yeah. we felt. I feel like we were the three in the canoe. Yeah. But it was. It's funny. I was happy, and that we had a lot of things. But there was a. I didn't really realize how nerve wracking it was. I think until I got older. Right. Because you're not. If you can't feel that numbness, you only feel it when you start coming into your body, and you're like, "Oh my God, I'm alive." Mm. And I felt it when I go home and, and things happen and I have to suppress my inner voice a little bit. Yeah. So it makes it sound like it was awful. It's so kind of 
minor. It was com- it was complicated. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, it's interesting because the and and well, the question I have for you is that like I grew up in the suburbs and and but everything I know about New York mm-hmm. and growing up in New York City, um, it centers around there kind of being a way that that happens and a way that you you know you do things and from here you go to here and from there you go to here. Yeah. Did you kind of follow that very much that New York City kind of path? Well, I could through have school and, would and have beyond. If I'd fit because yeah. you, yes, the assumption was especially I went to private school. Dad worked really hard. We were not. You know, he was a ship broker and his own businessman to uh-huh. send us to school. Yeah, because that was the ticket in mm-hmm. and. Um, it was assumed you'd go to university and follow those things. Yep. But then some part of me didn't fit. Like I didn't want to do um, dancing school and right. kind of come out. And I didn't want to do all that stuff. And I got out of there, ejected myself out to, I went to Middlesex boarding school in, in Massachusetts at oh. 14. And I self-nominated and uh-huh. was like, Tew. and I was so happy then. Wow. So happy. So I was living in the country. Yeah. It was around the forest and, and this beautiful pond and... And I then had relationships with adults that were really consistent and uh-huh. consistent with everyone. So I knew what the rules were, and yeah. I thrived. Whereas I'm not sure if I had that kind of consistency at, at home. home. I had to kind of anticipate what people wanted at home, mm-hmm. which makes you a bit nervous and sure. very paws up wanting to please. Yeah. So it was, it was relaxing to me to be at boarding school. It was wow. Real, I loved it. I was, loved it. Did you feel like that was a turning point for you? At yes. all, like if you look back now. Oh, absolutely! It was it was a huge. I mean, I never really thought of it until just this moment. Yeah. But it was a huge turning point in the independence. Yeah. And the kind of times of being calm. I was a little like Harry Potter. I kind of didn't want to go home. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but home was also boring. Like yeah. my parents didn't really make it. We would go on nice holidays, but if we weren't, we were. You just read books, didn't right. you? And kind of wait till you get back to your friends. Yeah. So being with my friends in dorms was amazing and. Also physicality, like I'd never, we did sport, whereas in New York you didn't, you did a bit of sport, but not really. Yeah. So it was fun, I did rowing and I don't know, I mean, it still wasn't very coordinated, but it felt much more embodied and it felt much more healthy and I, I loved it. Did you ever, did you miss your brothers or you miss you? I didn't miss anything. No? No. And that's, so that's kind of scary. Good place, well, I'm though. not sure. I mean, <laughs> it is, but it was also, I was just deeply present in it. Yeah. And loved it. But, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, did I miss my brothers? I should have. I, liked, I just didn't stop loving them. Yeah. But uh, no, no. And so, okay. So if you had to think about what that experience, so from what years were you in, in boarding school? 14 to 18. Wow. Okay. So if so you that had to was think a, about yeah. what that experience gave most to you, what would you say? I think also a love of learning. So it's a really yeah. classic liberal arts education. So yep. we did Latin. We read the Iliad. Mm. It was a really classical liberal arts education. And it, and I, I got exposed to stuff that, that I haven't met a lot of other people who had that kind of education, I suppose. I mean, yeah. it's a pretty classic a very classical education and it made me love literature and love writing and learning even though I wasn't an amazing student I kind yeah. of got to a B plus average by year 12 but but um so not the sharpest knife in the drawer probably but I just worked hard I loved my teachers and yeah. I wanted to please them and they were inspiring like you know yeah. they loved literature they loved and they dealt with you real they like yeah. dealt with you straight up so there was something hmm. very relaxing with the realness of it and the way that yeah. they would talk to you like you're an adult. Yeah. And they expected you then to reciprocate as a responsible human being. I mean, to a degree, you yeah. were a teenager, but I'd love, I just thrived on that. Wow. And so, hmm. so then where'd you go from there? 
I went to Georgetown. I scraped in on the wait list to Georgetown uh-huh. and did an arts education, uh, not, you know, liberal arts degree uh-huh. and did, um, what did I do? Political science and English and then did a fifth year master's in English. But I did a lot of theology. Really? So the first year I was there, the second semester, I wanted to do Buddhism. I don't uh-huh. know why. It was like some some call. And I had to apply because it was mostly um, a third and fourth year thing that you could do, junior, uh-huh. senior thing. So I had to write a letter to this woman as to why I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And she let me in. And she let me sit on the floor instead of at a desk. And I totally, I nailed it. I got an A. I just got Buddhism and yeah. it just went, this is it. It just made so much more sense than any other philosophical approach to life and that kind of changed things and georgetown it was a catholic university but they had their the first course you did was called problem of god Uh and Uh you had to read all these different writers and then write your own manifesto at the end of the semester wow which i still have and i thrived on and this is in your freshman year yeah every student does problem that's fantastic it was great and it depended on the professor that you got yeah but what an amazing way to put spirituality into it so not being catholic i like Catholic education when yeah. it has that Jesuit flavor and it has that inquiry flavor. Yeah. So I did, I could have probably been a theology major too, because I really did theology almost all the way through as well. Do you, so where did that, where did that interest in theology come from? Was that something, was Just that a part of your of life? I don't know. How yeah. do you be a good person and how do you, that, that was interesting. And literature was kind of an exploration of that in mm-hmm. a different way. Yeah. Political science was just an easy measurement. Yeah. You know, but it was, I think that was what it was, is that there was that inquiry for me early yeah and it's at the end of uh uni- my senior year so i'm what am i 22 and i started doing yoga they had a yoga course that was free wow so i rocked on down to this yoga course yeah. and, and so wait what would you yeah. say what would you say interested you in the yoga course was that something that you had i don't know had i don't think it was like sure you know i would go lift some weights with friends uh-huh. and go to the gym and stuff and then it was like yoga and it's free and i thought i'll try it and in new york on the television when we were little there was some woman in a leotard i think they mm-hmm. had her in australia too oh. and i remember watching with fascination we didn't have the tv on much in our house yeah. and going huh that's yoga mm-hmm. and then there was this free class and i thought well i'll give it a try with no expectations at all i don't know why i really chose but from the first class the way that I've tried to describe it or the way that I conceive it is I was always, if you trap a bug in a jar, mm. it bangs against the walls of the jar incessantly to get out. Yeah. And when I went to the yoga class and it was just kind of a dinky sort of Sivananda type, lovely guy, uh-huh. but it was like somebody put a piece of clover in the jar and I just sat there on the flower and something went really still. Yeah. We didn't do meditation or breathing or we did poses, but I liked it. Wow. And it was, and I was terrible at it. I mean, I really, eh, really <laughs> hypermobile and yeah. not strong, but I loved it. And so from then on, like I was a partier, we would, you'd go to Grateful Dead shows and all that sort of stuff I was going on with my friends, but I never missed yoga. Really? Yeah. So, okay. So what aspects of it did you like? Like what kept drawing you back? Was it that experience of stillness that you said something that felt different to? I wish I could say that I really could know. Yeah. It was one of those things that it just felt so right. Yeah. And I had never done something in a way where you were asked to concentrate and kind of given time to organize. Yeah. So being a little bit uncoordinated and loose jointed, it was so nice to be given the time to organize my body and then try something with breath. 
that I really liked and I I just loved the feeling of it and I must have and then I remember I had this beautiful boyfriend in high school who broke up with me and whatever I got over it but he came by with a girlfriend of his his new girlfriend and I met her and she was lovely and I said oh I'm doing yoga and she said yoga is amazing you can be thin or fat or whatever yeah but your body's the best it is when you when you're doing yoga hmm. and you know when people say something and it goes to the center of your yes being? completely I just remember her saying that and I thought yeah you know it's not about weight it's not about strength even mm. it's not it's about it's it, it's embodiment it's all I could think is that I finally hmm. felt like I actually had climbed into my bodysuit and I was there hmm. and I think that felt kind of whole yeah in, in some way although wholeness Still eludes me, but still. <laughs> <laughs> Some days. Wow. And do you do you attribute any of it to the teacher? And did you go to the same teacher all through the rest of Yeah. So he was college. there for the next two years. So yeah. I was there. I did my senior year and then I did my um, master's year and kept going. Mm-hmm. He, I guess having a Sivananda approach, I'm really glad that I didn't go to something that was like vinyasa style because right. I probably wouldn't have been That's able. That's what I wondered. Yeah. No, this was much more, I remember he called down face dog inverted V and he was a really <laughs> thin, obviously a, clearly a vegetarian kind of yogi, thin body. He was foreign of some, you know, he had dark hair and maybe slightly dark skin, but he could have been anything from Turkish to Puerto Rican to uh-huh. Indian. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. He just, it was not... But he was calm, and I remember I tried to get into a headstand, mm-hmm. and he also could see me, and he goes, no, he's, he's like, you don't have enough strength in your, in your, kind of your buttocks and your legs. He could see that, right. instead of just letting people totter around on their head, yeah. I think. He, and he, he wasn't attached to what I was doing. Yeah. So maybe that was it. It felt... But there was no spirituality in it, yeah. and I suppose teaching yoga at a Catholic university, maybe not, but mm-hmm. um, he embodied that calm. He was really calm and really saw the potential in you somehow. There wasn't a lot of personal interaction. It was There were usually about 20 people there or something, but yeah. it, I just loved it. Wow. And I, it's almost like I can't explain it except that that was I some compass thing reoriented in that direction yeah slightly deep inside me without some conscious awareness of it wow and so what how i mean a lot of it is in is in hindsight of course so how would you say that that influenced you it influenced me in that when i i just became a yogi then like Mm. i didn't even know what that meant Uh but from then on i've always done yoga and if you asked me what I do, I'd say, oh, I do yoga, I read, I whatever. Yeah. So I, it was, so then I, I remember the, after my master's year, I was, I worked a year to make money and then I went on a, oh no, I worked just like six months up from, from May to January and then went traveling, uh-huh. bought myself light on yoga. So I can remember going down to like the esoteric st- shop on somewhere down in Manhattan uh-huh. and I bought light on yoga. I was like, this looks good. And uh-huh. Nobody had ever told me about it. I selected like the tome really? of the century <laughs> on my own. It had yeah. all the pictures and the poses and uh-huh. some pretty good instructions. And I probably did read that book and then did the sequ- like the first six weeks of the sequence. I've probably done that so many times in my life. Mm. And I, and I could feel my feet wake up. They were like achy waking up and it was like, Oh my gosh, just following those instructions and mm-hmm. doing things. In a kind of patchy way, it wouldn't have been an everyday way. Yeah. But that book came with me around the world, and 
I, and then I and then I had to drop it because I had too much luggage, so I bought another <laughs> copy yeah. in India. Uh-huh. And it was just kind of something that I did. Meanwhile, when I traveled with my husband in India, so I met him the October after that. So I left in January of 90, uh-huh. met him in October again. I'd met him and kind of had a little small affair, and then we hooked up again in Kathmandu. Uh-huh. And again... We traveled all around India, and I didn't do any yoga. Mm. I did yoga by myself, but I didn't seek any teachers because yeah. I didn't know about any teachers. Yep. So it was like I didn't know that Iyengar lived in Pune or Desikachar lived in Chennai. I was in both places, and yeah. I didn't even look into it. So there's a lot I didn't do Yeah. where I think, oh, my gosh. But I just had to find things slowly in my own way. I've yep. bumbled always. And so, okay. So you mm. finish up, so I'm, I'm backtracking a yeah, wee bit okay. so that we can move forward. So you've, yeah. so you've finished school, yeah. you've gone traveling, you've met this lovely man, mm. he's traveling with you, then what? Right, so then I'm, what am I, 23, 24, 25, we lived in Taiwan, taught languages for a bit, and uh-huh. then I went home and came home and then went and visited him in Australia for the first time. Okay. And we took a combi van around New South Wales with uh-huh. his family and stuff, and I I mean, I still wasn't thinking marriage or anything. I was 25. But uh, something in Australia made me go, I've seen this before. And interestingly, I have family. So so my mum's fifth great uncle is Robert Campbell's nephew. Who's Robert? The, the Robert Campbell? His name was also Robert Campbell, and he's the nephew. Who's and, the Robert Campbell? You know Campbell Wharf in Sydney? No. <laughs> oh, it's like he's a major oh, right. dude who had the East India Company. And uh-huh. He invited his nephew out. And uh-huh. The nephew did like linked up all the railway systems. Oh, wow. And then they went back to England. Uh-huh. So we never even thought of ourselves as anything Australian. They married a couple of Australian girls, went back. But uh-huh. like we've had family here. And they set up things. It was just a, a wild thing to find out about later uh-huh. and read those stories. So there was this really familiarity. And I thought, okay, I like this place. And then we went back to New York on Long Island, mm-hmm. out in Watermill, and lived for three years on a property together. Uh-huh. And then I kind of couldn't get a job. So I was always doing yoga in various places, and I didn't know what to do. Like, what should I... I applied at legal firms, like paralegal firms, uh-huh. and kind of PR, kind of corporate stuff in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I've been working at a garden center on Long Island. Loving it. Yeah. Loving it. Feeling like I shouldn't, I'm not reaching my potential, but keep applying for these jobs. And they just knew. I've like stuffed myself into some pumps and a skirt. <laughs> yeah. And, and they must have You've all got been this, like, like, this chick does not want to wear this stuff and come yeah. to work every day. I must yeah. have just reeked of it. <laughs> and so then my stepmother said to me, you should do a teaching thing. Uh-huh. You're the world's expert on everything and you teach everybody everywhere. Why don't you just get your teaching certification and then see? And so this is for like for, high, for school teaching? For high school, or? for school okay, teaching. Okay, so yeah. I did it and it was really six months at LIU while uh-huh. I was doing this garden center thing. And then I got a job at a little school out there, which was amazing. And I yeah. taught English and social studies. And my husband had wanted to, move, well, he wasn't my husband yet. He was my de facto. He wanted to move back to Australia because he couldn't work. Uh-huh. And I wasn't ready to do that with him that was a big commitment and I said no I wanted to have this job yeah and so he sulked and then he did a course at uni and had the best year of his life anyway while he was waiting for me in Long Island yeah Uh so I only worked one year and I absolutely loved the teaching yeah and thought yep I think I am a kind of natural teacher Uh uh-huh and then we decided to move de facto to Australia yeah and then we got married as kind of a party anyway (laughs) second thought but still so then we moved to Australia in 94 wow Hmm. And so, and what, okay, so he grew up 
How did you land here? Like he grew up right. I near him. here, or so no. I met him on Long Island. He was a traveler, so he traveled a lot. He grew up in Sydney, ended up on Long Island because he'd done hotel management school in Ryde. Ended up working as a butler to Gary Cooper's widow, mm-hmm. and then worked for a landscaper that I'd worked for. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so he would work black over the summer, mm-hmm. and then travel all over the world, and then work. In the Long Island summer, you could make a lot of money right? landscaping. Mm-hmm. And I'd worked for them over the summer because um, they were friends of a friend. And, and so one day they introduced us and and I was like, ooh, he's so fascinating. He's <laughs> traveled in lots of places. And I, I fell in love with his voice. He's got a really, he's got a voice that's calm and nice. And, uh-huh. and I thought, oh, he's so interesting and fascinating and whatever. And so we, I was about to travel. So we talked a lot about travel and stuff. So that's kind of how I met him. Mm-hmm. And then we were going to go. We moved here, and he said, let's move to Sydney. And we looked at the northern beaches. And I thought, I don't want to live in suburbia. I've always lived kind of rural Long Island or or, or the city. Yeah. And Sydney is not a city. You can't live in the northern beaches and say you live in Sydney. You not live really. You out of Sydney. No, yeah. And I was like, this isn't Sydney. So we moved to Barrel, which is, do you yeah. know what that is? I've heard of the name of it. Is it is it outside of Sydney? It's outside of Sydney. It's like, I always say it's like the Millbrook is to New York, if you know New York. It's the horsey set. And okay. kind of the, the rich people go and wear their riding boots for uh-huh. the weekend, darling. And there's a um, private school down there called Frencham for girls. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so we moved there because it was cute and we saw a house got a couple of jobs real quick and we lived in this cute weatherboard cottage and Mm -hmm. started doing it up and it was adorable. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was nice to just be, not have to drive everywhere and do things like that. And then I found my first yoga teacher in Australia in near there. It was like, who does teaches yoga? That's the first thing you ask when I, when I got to a place. Yeah. And so wait, wait, just one quick question. I go too fast, sorry. Well, no, yeah, I'm like, I'm having to like yeah. weave through. So while you were, all while you were on Long Island, all while you were teaching yeah. um, school, what was happening with your yoga? Were you just, were you, was there a teacher there that you found? Oh, man, I you... Tell, I, luckily, my name, oh, my memory. John Seeley was the name of the guy. And okay. he now is like teaching, still teaching on Long Island uh-huh. and does a 10. And he was, he was a gorgeous teacher and he taught us like in people's backyards. Mm-hmm. So it was the mother of a friend of mine. So I was actually doing yoga with like 60-year-old women kind oh, of. Right. But still, it was great. Interesting. And he was beautiful and taught a group of us. Yeah. And then I went through like the aerobics scene and unitards and yeah. stepping and all sorts of other things too. That yeah. was fun. But the yoga was there and he was a beautiful teacher. And how did you find him? Was he just something, someone well, that somebody recommended? My or? friend's mother was doing it and she said, oh, you're interested in yoga, you right. should come. Yeah. So I did. Interesting. Yeah. It was, so that was, and I would just go to this little backyard with these ladies and do some yoga because yeah. there wasn't really that much yoga yeah. yet. Yeah, around. not at all. So this is when, 1993, Yep, okay. You know, there weren't. Things kind of exploded, it seemed then, like, towards the later end yeah, of the 90s. It. Well, I remember a friend of mine, so in that period before we moved to Australia, a friend of mine uh, said, you should go and do um, Alan Finger, who was oh, yeah. Ishta. Uh-huh. And in the city it was happening. So, yep. so she said, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I want to work out when I do yoga. She's yeah. a dancer. And so I went to it and I really liked Alan Finger. He did, uh-huh. um, you kind of would do a little bit of yoga, then you'd stop and meditate and do some breathing. And then you did some flowy stuff. It wasn't that hard, but yeah. it was still, it was a different way of doing yoga to the Hatha yoga, yeah. the Yangar style. Mm-hmm. And that, I could feel that cooking in the city, but I was in Long Island doing whatever I was doing. So yeah. 
I just stuck with stuck with that kind of stuff. And I always kind of did it on my own, but I would end up doing standing poses, like the beginning of um, Iyengar's book, you know, mm-hmm. just crank out a few standing poses mm-hmm. kind of thing. So yeah. by this time, even just from a yoga standpoint, it sounds like you've had this like kind of a varied um, experience from different yeah. teachers and then in your own stuff and whatever. Like at any point, did you feel particularly drawn or attached to like any particular style of yoga or, you know, no, or anything like that? I didn't like even that? know styles. I thought mm. that it was just the particular teacher. Yeah. But something important did happen. Before I married in 94, my mom and I went up to a yoga retreat at like Yogaville uh, in oh, upstate New York yeah. to the Satchananda. Yeah. And it was so funny because she's not really into yoga. She, I remember her saying to the guy, he said, now we're going to meditate. And then we finished meditating. And he said, so what did you think? And mom said, I've got much better things to do. <laughs> and, and he said. It's all just a waste of time. That's right. And he, I remember him. His name was Ram. He was like an antiques dealer from London. But uh-huh. he also would be Ram in this thing. And he said, oh, really? What? And she was totally flummoxed. Like, oh. he didn't mind meeting her right where she was. Uh-huh. And I looked at her and I thought, yeah, what? You know, <laughs> what? What, is, what is it that you think you have better to do than yeah. this? Yeah. And I remember loving doing a weekend of yoga. Like then mm-hmm. I just was like, oh, this is amazing. And they had a teacher training place in the Bahamas. So mom said, oh, oh yeah. I'll give you a teacher training uh-huh. for if you gift. ever want to do it as a gift. Uh-huh. And nothing really happened to it, but it was a standing gift. Uh-huh. So when we eventually moved here, uh-huh. so we had a few choices like you had. We lived in Barrel. Mm-hmm. Then we changed houses. We were doing the kind of climb up the real estate sort of ladder. So you you rent the good house and you live in the shack and do it while you're in it. And I had a baby at that point. I had a baby in 96, Uh Sasha. And, um, but I never met any friends there. I mean, I met older friends and I met, I had one girlfriend who I met in prenatal and I had another friend who was kind of wacky and wild, but that was it. And I was like, where are all the chicks? Yeah. And the chicks who, I would say it. Who who um, aren't afraid to say fuck, but don't say it that much. <laughs> I love that. Do you know what I mean? I want people yes, who like can, got a little edge who yeah, are like and real. And they were either these like private school kind of gold jewel wearing girls, or these uh-huh. people who like wore rugby shirts and went hard and yeah. watched footy and like drank till they dropped, which wasn't me. And yeah. and there was just like no kind of hippie chicks, but not too weird. So it was lonely, kind yeah. of. It was strange. And and hmm. then my husband had a had a minor car accident, which didn't really seem like a thing, but the airbag opened in his face. Uh-huh. And then I was just about to take Sash home and he was having a swollen, like an, a weird eye. Uh-huh. And he went to the doctor and had inflammation of the optic nerve and tingling in his hands from working too hard. Anyway, they thought he had MS. Oh. And in, we were public health. And so we had to wait three months for the MRI. Wow. And in that three months, we just totally turned our whole life o- over. So we went, Okay. If this is going to happen, because yeah. they were pretty sure, like those are two pretty random s- s- signs. Yeah. So we had to kind of look at our marriage and go, you know, am I going to push we... you around in a wheelchair and are yeah. you? And, and also, do we want to live here? Like, is this really what we want to do? Yeah. And we went, no, <laughs> we don't. Oh, wow. So we, then he was cleared. So you've got this like bucket so list of stuff you want to do. Yeah, that you're like half and it's into. on the wall. Yeah. And like, we're going to do this and not do this. And then yeah. they get clearance. Do you just go back to what you were doing? Yeah. Like, no, we got to find out where we want to live. And it's not here. Yeah. So we went back to New York and lived on Long Island. I say New York. I've never lived as an adult in the city. Yeah. I just was lived on Long Island in the Hamptons where mm-hmm. you could kind of parasitically suck off the rich and yeah. make some money as a, as a worker. Yeah. And 
We lived in my mom's house with my daughter. I worked. My husband took care of her. We totally swapped roles. Uh-huh. And we made nice friends immediately, really interesting international friends, and then looked at it after six months and went, we are never, we're always going to feel like we're not, it's not good enough, yeah. but it's about being rich enough or fabulous enough. There's always an A-list. There's an A-A-list and yeah. an A-A and an A-A-A. And then if you're, it just feels like there's someone always who's doing something more fabulous. Yeah. And I thought, I don't want to feel, first of all, pressured because everything's so expensive. Yeah. But I don't want to have that feeling. Yeah. And so we went, let's go to Costa Rica, which we had gone on our honeymoon and we'd actually bought we some land. To do that. Yeah. Right? We'd bought oh, some land really? with my brother. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, put 10 grand in for yep. I don't know how many acres with a group. Uh-huh. Anyway, we went down to the land to look at it and we hung for like three months in Costa Rica yeah. and went with an 18 month old now pregnant with the second child. Yeah. And then we sat on this black beach with kind of no facilities around and nothing and we went, we could just go to Australia. Like, what are we doing? We could have education and medical care and family or whatever. So mm-hmm. we, we said, well, where in Australia? And we'd both been to Byron as younger people. I'd gone as a backpacker through Australia, and uh-huh. he'd gone surfing safaris. So we went, great. And his brother lived in Lennox Head, which uh-huh. is where we lived. So we dropped in here, rented a house from a friend, like, immediately and just loved it. Yeah. And kept looking all around Byron and that. But Byron seemed sort of too pierced and too tattooed. Yeah. And too, not that there's anything wrong with that, but yeah. it felt like we we were now kind of almost 30, not almost like just 20. Yeah. It just felt like a generation You were just outside thing. of that and we a had a baby. Bit. Like we had a baby on the way and a baby. Yeah. And then our house came up in Lennox and it was like, bang. We just, it was like, this is our spot. Yeah. And it's on the fringes. You know how it's kind of alternative, but not too alternative. Yeah. You don't have to be weird and you can still be the weird one. Yeah. You have access to everything. Everything, all the different sides. And, and, and I, you know, I was saying, I think I said that to you the other day, that that as a, I felt like a plant that finally found its place in the garden. Yeah. And we went to playgroup. I met all these women who are now my, bet, like, really lovely friends yeah. that I've now had for 20 years. We started a book club. It was great. And oh. then, so I had my baby. Mm-hmm. She's six months, and I started going to Yoga Lattes, Okay, in Bangalore, yep. and Louise Solomon's really intelligent in the way that she fused them. So she didn't just yeah. sticky tape them together. She yeah. really thought hard and took all the latest scientific research, too. So that's imprinted me. Yeah. And I was doing her class prenatally, which was perfect because it was like stability-centered, and and she said, you know, I'm thinking of running a teacher training. There were no teacher trainings in Byron at that point. Wow. I know. This is So we're talking sometime. 2000. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. So 1999, Indy was born. Uh-huh. Uh, where are we? And then the beginning of 2000, I started my teacher training with her, mm-hmm. with a six-month-old and a two-and-a-half-month-old. And the only other teacher training I could have done was by Louisa Sears. So it was Louise Solomon or Louisa Sears. Uh-huh. And she has, I'm trying to remember um, what her thing is called. Because she stayed and has continued to be a long teacher, but it was Ashtanga, like Vinyasa Flow. Yep. But Louise Solomon had been hurt by that. And oh, so had done okay. Pilates and the rehab. Yeah. And I'm so grateful, not anything against Louise Asir, yeah. but I didn't have the strength or the stability in any way to yeah. do a training that was that hard. Yeah. It was also that age people got, a lot of people got hurt. Oh, a lot yeah. Of trainings. yeah. Definitely. I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people are still getting hurt. Yeah, actually. really hurt. But this was much more fitted to the person, yeah. not to the pose. Yeah. And that was the training I did. Right. I said, Mom, I'm ready. And so this yoga lattes thing. So th- th- uh-huh. this is very interesting because yeah. here in Australia, one of the things that I've sort of, I recognize when I came here mm. and when I 
uh, most recently, I think, came here as opposed to first came here, is that there's this there's this relationship between yoga and Pilates. Like, a, Pilates seems to be a really big thing, or at least it did yeah. a while, you know, it did a number of years ago. Really big thing. And then there's a lot of people who don't quite know what yoga is, or they think that yoga and Pilates are the same thing. Right. And so when I noticed that there's yoga, yoga Lotties, when I first thought yeah. that, saw that, I thought, well, that kind of makes sense here in Australia, but, yeah. you know, what exactly is it? How does it fuse the, the two together? I think there's people, I mean, she's not the only one. And I think somebody's yeah. called Yogi Lotties as opposed to Yoga Lotties. Oh, right. But I've looked at some of the ways that it's been stuck together and yeah. it, it was very much sticky tape together. And it's right. actually really dangerous to do that because the breathing is different and mm -hmm. the approach is different. In Pilates yeah. to yoga. Yeah, yeah that was so the, one of the first things I noticed. So you on the exhale, whereas, in, you know, we're closing the front body on the, in, on the exhale and yeah. yoga and opening. Whereas you do exhale on exertion, kind of the hard mm -hmm. thing, so you can keep your core together. The way that I understand it and what I liked about it was Pilates pulls out. If you think of a yoga pose as a highly integrated, almost woven together plat of, of uh, movements and functions, mm -hmm. if you pulled one of the threads out of that plat and you mm -hmm. looked at it, a braid for those of you who are yeah, listening in the United States, <laughs> um, you pull one of those threads out and then you do that in, in Pilates. So you'll isolate the transverse abdominus or you'll lie on your side and you'll isolate your gluteus medius mm -hmm. and you'll do like your clam, clam or whatever it is. Uh -huh. or, so you'll isolate particular muscles. And for me, that was like, oh, so right. that combined with anatomy to go, here it is. This is what it looks like in a book. This yeah. is what it feels like in your body. This is the movement that that muscle is responsible for. Yeah. Then you kind of use that as a warming up, as a limbering, as a, as a bringing your body online because so many people are so numb and yeah. they literally drag their corpses to class mm. and they're like, I was, you're like a marriage counselor between you and your body. Like yeah. they drag their corpse to the, to the class and, <laughs> and they're like, we don't love each other. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> and then you go, okay, as a teacher, just slide out a little bit together yeah. and we'll bring it online. And yeah. if you, if you don't limber people up and, and let them get in touch, you just start with down face dog and bang your away. The potential for injury is huge. Mm -hmm. Whereas to say to someone, Hey, here's your hips. It's a ball and socket. Move it a little bit. You are actually building a proprioceptive map. Mm -hmm. You know, there's neurological things that are happening. There's pranic flow that you're opening up. Yeah. And you're turning on the lights in the building. Right. And so that's, or you always start sort of supine or in child or sometimes seated on a block, but a lot of supine starts. And, yeah. and after deciding what you want to emphasize, then you might integrate it up into yoga poses. So then it's the applied anatomy or the applied use of that muscle. Right. So now we did glute medius and plank. Uh -huh. We did our core so you can stabilize your pelvis. Yeah. Now let's see how that happens in a lunge or taking a warrior one into a warrior three. Can you balance your pelvis on your standing leg mm -hmm. and manage it? Interesting. I have never been to a yoga Lattes class. Mm. And so they're really, it's really intelligent. And right. I, and I, I used to teach for her and stuff like that. And uh -huh. I don't anymore, but not for any, there's no, there's no burning that bridge. It, yeah. It's, I've just done other things and been interested in other yeah. things and kind of gone off, but it's, has so much integrity. And the other thing I loved is that she always brought new research in. So as I was teaching, we'd have an update mm -hmm. and she'd go, oh, look at this guy. We're doing postural assessment. Mm -hmm. Or um, we did Josephine Key's work, which is um, she's a physio in, in Sydney and wrote 
back pain, a movement problem, and uh-huh. all of her pelvic work in. So Louise is constantly bringing it in. And yeah. she would run a teacher training if there were five people or seven people or, you know, really close attention and yeah. a huge anatomical base. Wow. Mm. And so, I mean, do you feel like, I almost feel like I know the answer to this question, but I really yeah. want to understand it from you. Yeah. Um, you were highly influenced by this approach. So from yeah. where you I mean, were she taught me to teach yoga. Your... So yeah. I had never really thought about it. I mean, I suppose I'd put some friends, you know, on a hike or something. I'd be like, hey, let's do some yoga. Uh-huh. And, I, and I would say Simon Says up the front. Mm-hmm. But in terms of teaching function and understanding those things, and even when I started, there's a lot of things I really didn't understand. Yeah. But she had a format and a, th- a kind of protocol you followed that, and, and a way of adapting. So adjustments and modifications were not how you could push someone into a pose, but mm-hmm. how you could provide them with props to get them where they needed to be mm-hmm. to do it safely. Right. So the approach was huge. And yes, it's always made me think, I have to fit the pose to the person, not the person to the pose. Yeah. And at that time, in that training, my first anatomy teacher was Libby Nelson. I don't know her. She's a, a physiotherapist and uh, acupuncture person and um, amazing yoga teacher from Byron who's been my mentor really uh-huh. ever since. And she just kind of took me on. I think I was the the person who asked too many questions. Right. I was a little bit too eager. Yeah. And I remember her being like, in okay. time, yeah. in time, young one. <laughs> and then I, tr- the next year when I was teaching, mm-hmm. I went and taught at the, the Scout Hall in Lenox right oh, away. Yeah. So uh-huh. in your in, in your interview, we talked about momentum. Yeah. I knew I wanted to teach. Yeah, that's and what And then what literally I when I finished the training, which took at that point, we started in February or March, and I didn't finish till August and then I started teaching September 11th. Wow. I know, 2000. Yeah. My one-year anniversary was September 11th, 2001. Wow. Anyway, uh, 2001. Yeah. I just got myself 10 blocks, 10 mats, 10 straps, and just went for it. Had my friend make me some bolsters and eye bags, and wow. I was away. And so what, if you had to, if you had to, I don't want to say explain, but what is it that made you really want to teach yoga? I think my stepmother... I've had a complicated relationship and stuff, but she knew me in uh-huh. that way, and she knows I'm a teacher. I'm yeah. an educator, and I think of all things, I probably just want to share what I'm passionate about with people, mm-hmm. and I, I want to share it. And I could, I, the joy of teaching in the training, I just loved it. So the bits, of the, the bits of the training where you actually had to teach people, we there was, did. A, there and was she no had fear, classes or running, there was... so she had us teaching right away. We did one on ones, and then you built up to small groups, and then you built up. No, there wasn't fear. There right. was, there was like high oh, flow really? moment. Yeah. I just, I was so excited about it. It was yeah. just so exciting. And I mean, you'd get nervous, sure, but yeah. you kind of skip that because they're more important than you. Yeah. It's the same feeling as having children. I never felt more centered than having children. Finally, yeah. instead of worrying about where everybody else was and what they were doing, it was yeah. like, no, no, no. I know what my role is now. And as a teacher, all your problems are gone at the door. I don't yeah. care what you feel, whether you're achy, painy, or whatever. Yeah. Most of that just evaporates, yep. and it's them, and it's can you not make them do it, but can you um, give them that feeling and that insight and that? And so it you know it lies with you to communicate it to them. Yeah. But it's it it's like a flow experience, and it's never gotten boring. Not in the twenty years. It'll be twenty years in September, and it's wow. just not boring. That's, that's amazing. And so why? 
Yeah, why? <laughs> why is it not yeah. boring? Like, why has it never gotten boring? Because, There's some aspect. Because of... you have to do it yourself. Yeah. So in the, you're doing it, whether it's to prepare your class mm-hmm. or whatever it is, but you are constantly exploring. And I, mm. I realized that really early, yep. that you have to do the practice in order to teach the practice. Yeah. But not just to know how to do it, mm. but to be nourished, yes. to hold a place. And I think, the, you know, the other thing, and I think we might have talked about it, is when you teach, you stand up, and they think you're amazing. That's yeah. why you are. It's yeah. just the fact that you're standing on the mat in the front. Yeah. And they, they really look to you for an example. And so you have to exemplify. Mm. You almost step into your best self. Mm. So you might yell at the kids at home, yep. but you're happy to get someone a mat or a strap. And yeah. then, you know, you're really, yeah. you're, and you love in a way that is a universal, unconditional love. Yeah. Because you can love your students because they don't push your buttons. Yeah. This is, so you've heard that, and I don't know if I said this to you, but you've heard that saying from Judith Lassiter. Yeah. Teach, you did say for, teach for your right. student, teach yeah. for yourself and practice for your students. Yeah. And this is just, these are such beautiful examples of it. Mm-hmm. When I even think about, you know, just what you're saying about standing, standing in the, in the, you know, standing up in the middle of the room and you're your best self. Like that is so much for you. And yet it's so much for them too. You That's know right. what I mean? It's it just, is, but uh, it's, it gives you, and I've always thought of teaching almost like channeling that mm-hmm. best self. Cause I have hmm. honestly sometimes said things and taught things I didn't know until the moment they came out of my mouth. Yeah. But it's because I'm in that, it's in that flow state that synthesis happens and I'm like, damn. I know. Here it is. Look what just came out of my mouth. That is amazing. And so you, yeah, it's, it's such, wonderful. it's wonderful. And I think you have to kind of knock around for a while to do that. And Mm -hmm. you know, you put your 10,000 hours in, but you're, you're, I think it part of it is embodying that best self yeah. and really caring. So teaching yoga and practicing yoga, yoga is an act of love for yourself, yeah. but it's a real act of love. And I, that sounds so schlocky, but I mean it, it in doesn't. the way. It doesn't you know, to me. And I'd laugh. My family laughs because yeah. they, they come in. My husband really hasn't come to my class in like 10 years because yeah. it's, it's sort of me on steroids. Right. He's like, like, I get enough of you at home. But the kids come okay. uh-huh. and they can do the spoof version of me teaching. Oh, right. Hilarious. But... <laughs> But they can see that mm. what I'm doing there, and that I that I like it, you know, that I love it, and yeah. I love those people. And it's a, and then I'll, and then they'll laugh at me because it's like, oh, you're so like that in the class. But you know, <laughs> at home, it's much more challenging. Yeah. To, to have because because you love them so much more. Because yeah. if you lost them, that would be incredible. Whereas your students comes and goes. Yeah. And now you've been teaching twenty. I've been teaching twenty years. I've seen people have cancer and get divorced and lose babies yeah. and all sorts of things and then recover or come out of depressions or mm. it's just amazing. That community also I love. Yeah. Mm. And so and so you've been teaching in this same place. Well I've swapped from the Scout Hall Oh yes, okay, yeah. To the surf club. Oh right. And I okay. had one of the only little tips I've ever I don't I don't I'm not someone who has grudges or real things with people. Yeah. But they sort of turfed me out of the scout hall. That's a long oh. story. Yeah. And I was really like indignant. The only thing, good thing I can say to it was it was sort of a gang of people and they decided they didn't want me and that was it. Oh, I mean, right. It was really. And I was, I have grown up obviously with a degree of privilege where yeah. I'm used to being listened to. Yeah. And they didn't listen to me. None of them did. In fact, they started to think I sounded crazy. And the experience, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what people feel like. 
when they're... You're not taken seriously. Wow. I don't think there was a bigger agony until one day I just went, okay, I can see the comedy in this, I think. And it made me move to the surf club right Mm -hmm. as they were tearing down the community hall. So actually, it it saved me (laughs) because I'm now in the best hall in the world, possibly. It's great. It it is. I I think for for what you're doing, for teaching yoga... I think it's better than any of the other surf clubs around here. It's just amazing. It's just it's amazing. Yeah. So obviously something was looking after me, but I had yeah. to recognize it and stop kind of groping for what. It made me really understand what it's like to be disenfranchised. Yeah. I know that wasn't a very good example. But I mean, I I've never that. been persecuted sure. or in any way. Yeah. But a voicelessness and where people don't take you seriously was, was one of the most painful experiences it was it was horrible anyway yeah. that was you know all done and i'm all the better for it but still it yeah, was wow challenging and that's where you use your yoga isn't it yeah instead of getting just roiled up yeah. and suffering so much from it did you recognize that at the time my uncle said to me give it up babe you're like a dog with a stick drop it wow i remember him saying he was yeah. like what do you mean <laughs> And I just had locked on yeah. and was one eye and all I could talk about and think about it just consumed me because yeah. I was losing a place where I was teaching something I really loved yeah. and I'd been a good girl. Yeah. You know, that was my upbringing. Yes. I've been a good girl. You can't, you know, oh, wow. me. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, you know, outraged at the injustice. Anyway, it was fine. And, and s- so, yes, I've basically been teaching suburban normal people. Yeah. And I mean normal as in, I don't think very many of my students consider themselves yogis. Yeah. They are housewives and plumbers and dentists, and they do yoga. And I don't think most of them would do yoga, except a lot of them have heard from someone else. Yeah. Oh, she's all right. She's yeah. She, she's, she's a normal yogi, yeah, or well, she's, she's a normal sort of person, weird. too. She's yeah. a real Fruit Loop, but <laughs> she won't make you put your foot behind your head. Right. And she gives you options, and she keeps you safe. Yeah. And over the years, my commitment, and probably the development of my career, is in service to my students in Lennox Head because yeah. I had to learn anatomy to know what adjustments to give them. Yeah. You come out of teacher training and nobody does anything like your teacher trainees. You know? No. So I just kept studying anatomy, you know, structural kind of analysis and all that stuff yeah. over the years and then eventually started teaching on teacher trainings and, and teaching anatomy and things like that. But it was in the service of finding something for Rhonda's knee and something for, you know, Stan's hip or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So when you started that class in the scout hall with your 10 mats, was it your, was it your plan that you would become a yoga teacher? Like was it, in other words, that that would sort of be a career for you? Not at all. I thought I'll have a crack at this. I mean, that was it. I've I've never done stuff with much intention. I'm afraid. I really just sort of tip myself forward. And I think I'm almost scared to make plans. We've talked about this, about putting yourself out there and like making a big, forward investment yeah and so no i was like i'll give it a crack i mean the investment's not bad is it you rent the hall you got 10 you probably got less than a thousand dollars worth of equipment and you got yourself a little business yeah get some insurance and you're ready to go but uh and i was mum was really what i was first and so i taught one class a week for a while and then i built it up eventually to two classes a week and eventually, you know, eventually got, I've never, I still only teach five now a week. Yeah. So I think one time I taught seven and that's the most I've ever taught. Yeah. So I wasn't one of these sort of 25 classes a week people. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's the market for it, yeah. but I also had to sustain being a mother, you yeah. know, which was an important role for me. Sure. Yeah. So, um, but I remember like the third week out, 13 people turned up and I only oh had the goodness. 10 minutes and I sent one away. I was oh, like, really? I was like, okay. <laughs> I don't have space for you. No, Sorry. I just don't have headspace for you. Yeah, like, exactly. I don't think I can handle looking at 13 people. Yeah. 
Wow. You know, I mean, this morning I had 48. In my yeah. Class. It was like, it's just, you know, and it was, and I actually have trusted that a lot of people are okay. Yeah. If you give them permission yeah. to get out of something yep. or stop or lie there and what, it, it, then they'll be okay. Yeah. And you mean it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so mm. my, wh- <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, uh, yeah. This, I would, I would almost, I feel pretty comfortable saying this place where we live is, um, a, and you mentioned it before about how many yoga teachers and things there are here. It's kind of a very yoga, um, a concentration of yoga in Australia. I often say it's like the capital, like the yoga Marine capital County of Australia. Or Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. It's one of those places where there's a big alternative, Byron Bay is a big exactly. alternative center and a big yogic center. Yep. And so you've been here since kind of the beginning of the yoga kind of not necessarily yeah. yoga thing but yoga teacher how have you seen yoga here in this place right. change over these years you've had this fantastic yeah, it's window changed a lot exactly well so when i started teaching in lennox mm-hmm. there was there's one teacher who still teaches and she was teaching and is that the is dharma jenny. cottage lady no, no somebody else no her name's jenny she teaches at the scout hall oh right okay yeah i I think she's in the scout hall. She's taught for years. Like she's taught 30 years or something like that. Okay. Wow. And then there was another guy who taught, and I can't remember his name. He was amazing. And then a woman I did my teacher training with, Liz Costigan, is a Byron, um, is an Iyengar yoga teacher and has the Iyengar center in Byron. I've heard of her, yeah. And she and I were in the same teacher training, although she was really much more Iyengar and has stuck with that and not really gone the yoga lattice route. Yeah. She's taught in Lennox for almost the same amount of time as me. Okay. And and then I set up. And then Dharma Cottage and a lot of other people started coming over the years. And people would say to me, oh, is it okay if I teach in the hall or is yeah. it okay? And I always was like, sure. I don't know. For some reason, I just decided because I wasn't the first kid on the block. Yeah. But I was going to have a go at my little group. And, I mean, Jenny and I couldn't be more different teachers. I've been to her class. It's beautiful. She lights incense. And uh-huh. it's like got music and it's really ethereal and kind of spiritual and beautiful yeah. and mine is not yeah. at all it's like meat and potatoes and no you know no music and I kind of boss people around I talk way too much <laughs> so it's so they're not going to have the same students yeah and there's room for people to find their yoga teacher how many people do you need to come to your class yeah. for you to be all right so when people have asked I've just been like sure you know whatever mm-hmm. come on in it's fine and then as it got more popular, I think it got difficult to sustain it. Yeah. And this is something I've said to students and that Louise said to me, because people would see that she'd built up a following in Suffolk Park yeah. and be like, oh, you're doing so well out of your yoga. And she's like, I've been here 10 years. Yeah. And I've been here every week when there's two in the winter or none or one. You, you've got to stick like a barnacle on a rock. Yeah. And your students come and go and winter nights come and go and their kids do things, but you're there. Yeah. And you slowly build up. A group of people who come and then they go do Pilates and then they come back yeah. and then they that slowly builds up and and there was a challenge in the accessible yoga community this week to say how to make it more affordable how do you make it more accessible and that was my answer was find your place yeah. and hang in there because you got to have faith and just because it's two doesn't don't take it personally yeah you know get mentored grow but have some faith and just hold that spot I'm grateful to, to Louise for saying it. I've had other students write back to me and say to me, thank you for saying that. Because yeah. I just, 
push through those times when I thought nobody likes me. And they come, <laughs> they will come for sure. And you'll question. And yeah. I imagine those times as well have been times when many people have just dropped, forget it. They've just dropped off. Well, and if you, I, I mean, I have to say I've been lucky that I have a partner who is supportive of me and yeah. we, we live a very low profile life. So, mm. so, you know, we don't have fancy cars and we don't, we'd like to travel and that's yeah. about our only expense. Same so sense. I don't have big loans to pay because yeah. we don't, we wait that. to have the money to get it. Yeah. So, so the overheads were little, so I could just hang in there and not feel like this was my only, that we had a big budget to meet and yeah. that I, that I, um, you know, so that, that's a, that's a privilege really. Yeah. That's not something that everybody has. If you're paying off a big mortgage and you're struggling, yeah. you can't just work through that. Whereas I could, and I could give yeah. it a lot of attention as well, giving my kids attention. And yeah. that would be my only thing until I built up the teacher training thing. Was that always your intention to live that way? No, I didn't. It was just I had how no it intention. happened. I had that's what I'm thinking. Like, is this a, life you say no life. intention, but no, yet, and never to be something. a business person. I'm the yeah. I'm such an odd business person. I don't know what my intention was, and because I didn't know who I was, you know, I I knew things. I started to feel things that felt right once I got yoga. Yeah, and as the process of doing yoga and teaching yoga and learning about my body has made me be in my body and now I can trust it as a barometer Hmm. so I really have feelings where my brain will be like yeah that looks good and my body goes I don't like it yeah whereas I had none of that for a long time and I and I've been grateful I mean I've got in the Blue Mountains when I lived in um, Barrel I met Judy Krupp who's a really close friend and I teach with her and has been a mentor for me Uh and and Libby has been a mentor for me so I've had these experienced sort of older than me by 10 or 15 years teachers who nurtured me Mm -hmm. in really different ways they're very different people and one part of nurturing or being a mentor or being a teacher is not being attached to someone's progress but not being afraid to tell them the truth right and I needed the truth because I didn't trust being praised sort of lavishly that was Mm -hmm. I need I don't trust that at all and I didn't have enough self-confidence for that so it's it's changed completely the person who I am wow and I, I, I think I only realized it with the challenge of kind of aging, I guess, or yeah. maybe in the last few years I went to uni because I got, I, yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to talk yeah. a little bit about is go. kind of this, you know, we've got this view of where you've come from and then, mm. so at what point did, um, did your, did you realize that there was this interest in working with, you know, older, older populations mm. and, in the you know the stuff that you were studied that you studied in university like how did all of that evolve yeah how did all that evolve well i think i started teaching anatomy to modify things for my students uh-huh. and then i was interested in adjustments or structural analysis like what is wrong with them and how do you understand what's going on with them so you can see it and go ooh i think your hip is doing this so let's try that mm-hmm. and that sort of took me up a yoga therapeutic route and I, um, Byron, way too underqualified, but um, I still did it as I started running their yoga therapy training at Byron mm-hmm. Yoga, which meant that I was the coordinator of these amazing teachers. So Libby came, Judy came, Jacinta McEwen, who's an Ayurvedic, amazing woman from um, Mullumbimbi. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. Uh, she came, Eve Grabowski, an Iyengar teacher, came, and they would contribute, and I sat in on there at their feet for mm-hmm. these several years I coordinated, and I was the thread, so I'd sort of hold the students through it and teach them a lot of the anatomy sort of stuff underpinning it, uh-huh. and I did that for quite a few years. We only gave it up a couple of years ago, so I learned a ton there, 
And then I, I just stopped caring whether someone could do Trikonasana or not. Hmm. You know, the pose itself start and Donna Fari was a huge influence, and mm. so was Judith Lasseter. Yeah. So I, I did sort of four, four or five of Judith Lasseter's trainings, uh-huh. and Donna Fari's trainings. I've done four or five of things with her, and yeah. they just changed everything. And Donna Fari really gives you permission to feel and to go with what it is and to play and explore. Yeah, she's wonderful. And Judith Lasseter's anatomy and and structural and functional stuff was huge. Yeah. Huge and wonderful teacher. So there was a point where I thought Donna Fari said something in a training that she threw away. She's so articulate. (laughs) But she said yoga poses are a repertoire of shapes through which you explore consciousness. And I was just like... (laughs) <laughs> and I just went, oh, you mean the pose is not that important? Mm. And then Eric uh, Eric Schiffman's mm-hmm. book told, in the beginning of his book, he tells his journey where he found the teacher who really said, feel it. Yeah. It's yours. You do it. So it's permission to make it yours. Yeah. And then um, Gary Craftso's book, Yoga for Wellness, uh-huh. blew my mind. At some point in this time, I discovered that book. And it was breath-centered yoga, but he also organizes the book where it's in groups. So you open it up, and it's like, this is about yoga and some of the principles, and then forward bends. Mm. And there are all the ways you can bend forward. So you can flex your spine and flex your hips. Yeah. And for each one, he said, the primary intention is this. So for Paschimottanasana, the primary intention is to stretch the low back. Yeah. But for Uttanasana, it's to stretch more of the hamstrings and traction the back. And I was like, you mean... You do poses because you have an intention? I mean, how stupid am I? And I, I was like, I used to think they were letters in a Scrabble bag. And right. you pulled out the letters and then you made a sexy sequence. Right. And you, the letters you were given were the letters that you kind of did. You tend yeah. to tick through the poses or you generally made a sequence that covered these bases. And yeah. it was like intentionality. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And maybe you never do Paschimottanasana. Mm-hmm. If you sit at a desk all week and you're in that position, it's a bad pose for you. Yeah. That just sh- shattered, like, everything. And then I yeah. started grouping poses in pose families yeah. and, like, what you use the intention for. And you teach then for the intention. And now what do you want to teach given that intention? Yeah. So then I thought... Did that just completely change your teaching? Did that completely change your practice? I started the way that I would introduce things was I would tell people not how to do the pose so much as this is why we're going to do it. Right. And and so this is what we're after. And if you can't do it, well, this modification will give you the same intention without the risk, kind of. And and the other thing in his was the compensations. So I knew that from Yoga Lattes, but the idea of compensation. So when you try a movement, say you have... No glute medius strength. I'm using that mm-hmm. over and over. If you right. stand on one leg yep. and your glute med is weak, yeah. your pelvis is going to sag off it, twisting uh-huh. your lower back or sacrum. Yeah. Or your knee is going to torque in. Mm-hmm. So somebody's going to pay for it. Yeah. And it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. So you need as a teacher to see those compensations and teach to those as well. And yeah. go, watch your knee points forward, stay mm-hmm. strong in your foot, and don't sag your pelvis because otherwise come out of it or do something about it. Right. So then I thought, okay, what do I need? Am I going to be a yoga therapist? Should I go to do osteopathy? Should I do Feldenkrais? Because mm-hmm. um, Libby knows a lot about Feldenkrais and has done Ruthie Alon's um, Bones for Life, which okay. she integrates. Oh, wonderful. Ruthie Alon adapted Feldenkrais's stuff uh-huh. 
into movement kind of sequences or what you call processes or something. And they're, and they're amazing. And Libby uses them to warm you up the way that I might use Pilates or something to warm you up. Okay. So I use a lot of that now, a lot of Feldenkrais. Donna Farah uses a lot of Feldenkrais. Oh, right. Okay. And she uses a lot of body, mind centering. Yes. Uh, Beryl Bender Birch? Uh, or, no, no. Um, no. Uh, Bonnie Bainbridge That's Cohen. That's it, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen. That's right. Who yeah. is, I did a workshop with her two years ago. Oh, with, I've been with Libby and Judy. I've amazing. been dying you to do to. one. You oh, have to. You oh, have to. I am not a big sitter at the feet of gurus. Yeah. I could have just sat and gazed up at her with a smile on my face. Oh. She is, she is a radiant soul. I and bet. she's a very real, very genuine. And she, what was beautiful about her is at the end of this workshop where she was pretty amazing, took us through embryology and how yeah. you can apply it, kind of embody it. Mm-hmm. I've heard but about the, her doing that. Oh, at the end, she said, now you could do this. Yeah. Like you can look at the the knee or the hip or the guts and you can find it in yourself and mm. then teach it. Like my work doesn't end with me. Like go yeah. do. Here's the seeds. Yeah. You this is it. Take it. Yeah, take it. Oh. And that was so generous and so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that was wonderful. So, so, and somatics. So there were things to look into that I was reading. I'm a, I'm a huge voracious self-studier. So yeah. I would study, I would study and read about yoga and, and mental health and older people and anatomy and research articles for about 20 hours a week. Wow. It's just, if you could, no, yeah. oh, you do. would, you do. I, do. Oh, I just great. do. If I have time oh. and I get really, so I need to read research articles and then, you know, all sorts of stuff. I'm yeah. just doing, and if I find something I like, I will write all the notes on it yeah, and like spend a couple of days, you know, just churning through it till I understand it. Yeah. Or I'll listen to a podcast 10 times till I know the language of it. Right. So I'm slow, but I'm determined. Wow. So there was this moment and then I thought maybe I'll do physio. Uh Uh-huh. That's what I was Because I wanted something mainstream. Yeah. So osteopathy, Feldenkrais still isn't considered mainstream and taken as seriously as I wish it were. Yeah. There's no physio. Uh, at Southern Cross University, which is my local university. And I had two children about to do their HSC, you know, in the next four years. So there was occupational therapy. And my friend, I was working with her daughter who had some stuff going on. And she said, you know, you would make a really good occupational therapist. And I just impulsively looked it up, applied and got in before I frankly could have even told you what an (laughs) occupational therapist was. So I just tipped myself into it. Five years, all this work. What I've known or thought about the expense of time and energy, I wouldn't. Anyway, and I did it. And it is the best thing I ever could have done. And the program was pretty good. Yeah. Because occupational therapists and yoga therapists are very similar Mm. because we don't do anything to anyone. We facilitate them doing it for themselves. Mm -hmm. And an occupational therapist will say, how can I either change the environment? So can I put like a flower bed up or down? So that's like props. Yeah. Or or can I change the person? Can I train their glute medius to help them? Yeah. Or give them a technique for getting up and down off the floor Mm -hmm. or for coming in and out of Warrior 3? Yeah. Or can I modify the task? So can I change it to a more remedial version of it or something? Yeah. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this fits perfectly. Wow. But then there was tons of other stuff that I kind of hated to do. But still, (laughs) but it was okay. That's going to uni. And so now you have begun incorporating this... All of this study and all of this knowledge. Well, the first thing I did as yeah. an occupational therapist that changed. So I thought now I need to do having graduated certified. I actually at this in the same time I got certified as an occupational therapist. They grandfathered me as a yoga therapist. Okay. So half the uni degree and all my other study went together, and the private work I've been doing, you know, was my evidence. Yeah. 
that was the most exciting thing because that felt like it took 20 years to get. Yeah. You know, it's a really exciting thing to be. And I thought, okay, what do I do? And I thought, first I need to give juice to the yoga that I wanted to teach for the five years I've been busy. Yeah. Because I honestly couldn't think between kids and traveling and teaching and stuff. So I thought I'm going to start a yoga for older grown-ups class. So my first class I call yoga for grown-ups because it's, I want consenting adults who don't want to do stupid stuff and risk around. They Mm. want, they have a life and they're too busy to get hurt. Yeah. And they're also intelligent enough to make decisions for themselves given the right amount of information. Yeah. So the older grown-ups class, suddenly people started coming and we do balance and we do strength and things that I know from research help older people or avoid the stuff that, undoes older people like falling over and things like that and i love it it's an hour-long class and we work with chairs we don't sit much in chairs but that's changed everything and it's kind of given i kind of broke out of a rut i was in in my other teaching do you know when you're busy you can kind of teach the same thing yeah and i didn't know how to break out of it and that's given me this tremendous surge of juice yeah so does that come had, had that the interest in that come from just having these these older students showing up in class and really wanting to I serve mean, we them aged, better i suppose like yeah. my demographic is aged yeah and and but i could also see it coming like yeah. i can see in my own body as yes. i age and i can see people who didn't pay attention to hmm. it who are hip replacing or who are really suffering for having not listened so why not practice that which you will need later? Yeah. Because I also got really interested in mental health. I did my occupational therapy trainings in mental health and trauma. Uh-huh. And just it was sort of when trauma was all the rage, so I would read the research articles oh, yeah. and do it. But yeah. it's but I started to realize that a lot of kinesthetic blindness for people comes from trauma. Mm. And in some students I'd try and teach something and it wasn't because they were injured, but because they were blocked. Right. And you start you do enough yoga therapy with people, as you would well know. Mm. There is always something mental under the physical. Absolutely. Every always. Time. Every time. They don't always. want to talk to you about it straight yeah. away. But sure as sugar, and, that's where you end up. And this is something we're going to have to have, do a talk about yeah. for sure. Because yeah. the, I wonder, how do you get to that? Or how do you give them access to that? Can you do that through the physical? Or does it always have to come through some some, some people, mental practice? If you know what I so mean. So by that you mean you're... you're therapy clients or your students yeah whoever give them access to what's blocking them my understanding of it now is that you meet people where they're at so you talked talked about that yeah and some people are more able to access a particular kosha so actually if i give the example of myself my teachers and mentors act accessed me through my intellect Mm. my body was dragging around behind me literally like a rag doll behind me yeah that would not have been the place i would have learned things yeah but you gave me anatomy and you told me that this attaches to this and this is what it does and i then have a picture in my mind and i can apply the anatomy of my body and it came up so i went from that mind kosha to the body kosha so you you actually meet people where they're strong Mm. and then every other will be illuminated by it right and so some people come and they're really emotionally sensitive but then they're i think you just have to meet and most people are blocked in those other things and but i meet a lot of people who come through their intellect right or through their thoughts and and kind of emotions and then their body drags on behind yeah but then you meet other people who you start talking about that and they're like i just wish you'd just shut up and show me yeah and they want to do it through their body right oh 
So I think that I think wow. that's my answer. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, that's per- that's such a great answer, and to me, that's. Because that's I what can't. yoga's prepared for. Exactly. Like it's, it's a, they, they got it. Yeah. You know, they're like, okay, we got the kosha model. You yes. counted your kosha. You got your limbs. Yeah. So a lot of people want to talk about their body, but then eventually you're talking about lifestyle yeah. and, and what underpins it. Yeah. What ethical, what, it's ethical behavior sounds so self-righteous, but if you don't lie, you don't have to remember what you said. Yeah. If you don't steal, you're going to have to hide anything. Exactly. If you don't wish and grasp, you're not trying to getting rope burned, yeah. trying to change things. Exactly. It's ultimate stress, stress reliever. <laughs> That's right. And so you, it's just, it's the ultimate stress reliever. Yeah. And so then you're chill. You know, yeah. if you're hangover, it's just doesn't feel that good. Yeah. So, you know, you can be loose here and there, but if you want to, if you want to feel better, that was one of the, another Judith Lasseter line. When should I do yoga at home? Only on the days when you want to feel better. Yeah, it's great. What a great answer. I love her. She's so she, amazing. Do, I don't know. I don't yeah. always do yoga. Yeah. I mean, I do it a lot. Yeah. But some days I, I get up and go for a swim, and I might not do yoga that day. Yeah. I, sometimes I almost always drop to the floor. My daughter's boyfriend yeah. asked if there was something wrong with me because I like <laughs> to drop on the floor and do a few rolls around. Yeah. But it's if I feel good. Mm. But it's a tool to make you feel better mm-hmm. mentally, emotionally. A few years ago, my mother-in-law had a subarachnoid hemorrhage so she had a major bleed in her brain and we uh-huh. thought you know they can die right away she didn't then you can die in the next three weeks she didn't so i felt like i was i i, I visualized myself like a crab on its toenails yeah. for that time just uh, and it was a matter of sitting with her in hospital and calming down mm-hmm. i used more yoga then mm-hmm. than i have ever that was really like this is the rubber on the road. Right. And that was in the middle of all that being interested in trauma at the end of my occupational th- therapy wow. career. Yeah. That is when I realized you need to practice the stuff you need when you're old. Yeah. Or mentally unwell. Mm-hmm. Or your child, your spouse, your somebody. It doesn't even have to be you is yeah. going through stuff. You can't learn this stuff under stress. You can't, you can't learn anything right. under stress. Yep. You don't come up to someone in an asthma attack and go, or an uh, anxiety attack and go, would you like to learn some pranayama? Yeah. <laughs> but if you have been humming with them yep. in class, you can say, hum, let's yeah. go. And, the, and like children who learn their bedtime routine, mm. you can drop into a routine you've practiced to make it a less higher brain thing. Yeah. You move it to a sort of a lower part of your brain when you've memorized it or, or familiar with it. Yeah. So you don't need your frontal lobes and your neocortex. You can just let the organism of your body bring you back yeah, into the world. Yeah, kind of take over a bit. So that's how I started to get, that's how old age and mental health went. Because yeah. they're both going to happen to all of us. Mm. Like, give me a life without stress. Yeah. And then, but you need your stuff now. So whether you're 30, 20, whatever, get going. Learn how to get up and down off the floor and out of bed. And then when you're 80, you just get up off the floor. It's there for you. Or when you break your ankle, you can do it with one one leg because you know how to do it. So I had a friend who had a terrible back injury last year and really has like got much more nerve sensation back in, but is still working with funny, weird sensations in her leg. Yeah. She just was like... I don't know what I would do if I didn't know how to get up and down off the floor, up and down off the toilet. Yeah. You know, all that sort of sit to stand and getting up is good yoga. You know, it's, we get on the floor in yoga. You yeah. may as well teach people how to get up and down. Yeah. So. Oh, that's such a great advertisement for, for starting yoga early, you know, <laughs> or any time at any time. And the ambition is 
Because we all go to that. I don't know. Yeah. It feels so intoxicating when you start it. You feel so good and so strong. Yeah. I remember a moment where I was like doing handstandy sort of drop back things. Oh, wow. Well, then there was this moment where I went, what's next? Yeah. Is it where sort you of go a one-handed here? handstand with the trumpet in my ear? Or, yeah. You know, it's just getting to be circus <laughs> tricks. Yeah. And I could also feel it be dangerous. Yeah. And then you think, well... In yoga, there's yama and niyama. Asana is your third limb. Yes. It's not exactly hierarchical, but yeah. let's just go with it. Yeah. What's next? It is not a one-handed handstand. It is sit down, be quiet, sweetheart, yeah. and breathe. Yeah. Now, then breath-centered yoga really caught me, and, and vini yoga or um, Krishnamacharya-style yeah. yoga, because for the hyperactive, it's pranayama while you're doing asana. Mm-hmm. Is much easier to learn how to breathe using your body as a conductor of yep. prana. Yeah. And then it's helped to be able to sit down and do some seated pranas, pranayama and meditation. Yeah. That's where you go. Yeah. The hardest pose of all is sitting on your butt. Yeah, isn't it? And when I met you, you were just about to go do the, the vipassana. Yes. Not your first, but still. Oh, and no, I, it was my first. Oh, it was? Yeah, that was my first. Oh. No, 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 that was my first. And I just, I still am terrified of, of oh. sitting for 10 days because I am so yep. hyperactive and I'm also hypermobile, so different joints don't do well staying in the same position for a long time. But yeah. that is the hardest pose. Yeah. And then you have the monkey of your mind. Good luck with that. Oh, it's... So yoga's never boring. You were saying, why don't you get bored? Yeah. It's because... that. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So, so how has your... And you've touched on this a little, but I kind of want to, like, mm. get... How has your personal practice changed mm-hmm. from that first class at Georgetown to, <laughs> right. to this morning? Okay. That's, that's, that's so important. My personal practice before would have been to go through the motions of something that I had been taught mm-hmm. and kind of imitate it and make the shapes of it. Mm-hmm. And I probably was breathing while I did it, although I have no recollection of that. But I would make the shapes and I would try and get the alignment right. Yeah. And in that way, probably better practice when I was by myself, Mm. not trying to do something at anyone else's pace because I had the time to organize. Because again, if you're not very coordinated, then you need more time. So fast flowing practice is not helpful for you. Mm. Um, whereas if you're athletic or you come from athletic people, yeah. then my children are both very coordinated. They dance, they do stuff. It, it, that's easier for them. Yeah. But so that was it. And then, then there was this sort of revelation that you could feel it. And that really came hmm. late. I yeah. was teaching already. Yeah. And I could see then how people would relax, I guess. And I, I loved... It's when I hit sort of Feldenkraisy stuff and when you could just roll around on the floor. Yeah. And it was that I'd roll around on the floor. You know what it was? It was just, I'd started teaching and I had access to this, to the scout hall mm-hmm. and my house was hectic with small children. So it was just a, across a field. So I would nick there by myself. Not nobody knew, but I just would use the hall by myself. Uh-huh. And, and I was actually working through, um, Baron Baptiste. Oh yeah. He had power that secret, something. Power, power of flow. Yeah. Which was really hard for me. Yeah. And I remember sweating in that hall. That it's hall was colder on. than a grave in yeah. winter and hotter than a furnace in summer. But I, I did it. I would take 
two and a half hours to work through a sequence that would take half an hour or something. Sure. But I loved working on it and kind of going in and going out and going in and going out. And it was kind of like that. It was really like I was, so I didn't care and no one was watching. Yeah. But the feeling I feel, felt myself get strong. And I felt what I had to do to get there and mm -hmm. I could scaffold myself. And it's kind of gone on from there. Yeah. And now, and for the last, for quite a long time, maybe for eight or nine years, I always start my own practice supine, lying on the mm -hmm. floor, and I roll around a lot, and I kind of play with my hip joints, and I, I find each joint. Yeah. So it's almost like a joint mobilization practice first, yeah. and then I find if I can move into the flexibility, and then can I be strong there? Mm -hmm. So can I resist a little bit? And then I'll kind of come up to all fours and then go in whatever direction I want to go whether I'm doing breath-centered practice or I'm kind of grunting it or doing a bit of core. I have different intentions. Yeah. And in my own practice, because I'm a weak and now aging person, not that I was not aging then, but you know when you are past menopause and past 50 that you're aging yeah. differently. It's very hard to get that strength back quickly. Mm -hmm. I have to do strength all the time uh, in some key joints to stay safe. Yeah. So there's targeted practice, and then sometimes I, I do stairs and stuff. I don't. It's not always yoga that is. I select to meet that strengthening need. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's very personal. Yeah. And it's very intuitive. And then and then I think, okay, I have some things I need to do. I know what I have to do, so I'll do that and play. But I'm also experimenting. That's what I was wondering: lot. is how do you discover new things? Because I've found. Hmm. I don't go to many classes. I don't, you know, of other people. Yeah. Um, and But every time, every once in a while when I do, I might find something new mm. and I find new things, you know, and playing around myself and on the mat and various yeah. things. But yeah, how do you discover? Well, I look on the internet, so I read a lot of articles mm -hmm. and see what's there and I'll try the article. I've read yeah. every Yoga Anatomy article and, you know, Yoga International and I love people like Doug Keller and uh -huh. so I'll work clearly through, or Judy Goodhamstead, I don't know how to pronounce her name. She writes yeah. and wrote Anatomy for Yoga Journal. Uh -huh. um, and I'll go through and then try all the movements that they have. Mm -hmm. And then since there's online platforms like Yoga Glow, I've mm -hmm. gone in and out of. Sometimes yeah. I go and then I've done what I want to do. Yeah. Because there's some really hairy, dangerous stuff. Yeah. You know, where you're Definitely. like, oh, whoa. Yeah. And then there's... I've thought that too. Yeah. And, and, you know, thank goodness I know how to keep myself safe. Mm. And then there's wonderful stuff yeah. where I, you know, I, Rod Stryker, I really enjoyed yeah. and Jason Crandall. Yeah, and he's I, great. Yeah. So there's people, and then you start following and playing. Yeah. And I will do the same. If I like something, I'll do it over and over again. Yeah. And then I often will start it and then shut it off. And it's like, I'm like, okay, I know what I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that happens a lot. And you so I've been started, playing I'm with good. Yoga International and Rocky Heron or whatever, you know, you, uh -huh. and you go, okay, well, he starts the conversation and then I, I'm like, okay, I know, I know what I want to say. Yeah. And it, and it's, that's fun. Yeah. Because they kick you off with an idea and then you go, because you can sometimes sort of squint into the sunlight and think, oh, I don't know. Yeah. And especially if you're feeling disconnected and busy, like if yeah. you've had house falls or there's stuff going on with kids and with all that stuff, you just, so you need to have a marriage counselor for you and your yeah, body. Yeah, for sure. And get yourself settled. Yeah. My, one of the things we were talking about, like um, getting ready for being old and ready for mental health. Yeah is I, I go to Libby's class once a week, uh -huh. and I'm the youngest by a bit. Yeah. And she starts us with a routine that is a prana-moving routine, hmm. 
And I start, I have my like yoga for grownups warm up that I pretty well do, give or take. It's on my website on the resources thing, uh-huh. and, you know, in the audio section. Because I think having a warm up routine really helps. Yeah. And then she's added this prana routine, which she calls occult, but you, it's sort of an apanasana. There's, there's different ways of moving prana right. into all of the pranas. Yeah. So she starts with that. Whatever it is, choose three to 10 poses that you do. Yeah that have a purpose. So they may have an anatomical structural purpose to warm up your shoulders, your mm-hmm. upper back, your hips, you know, get, get some core uh, sort of switch on some breathing mm-hmm. or move the pranas into every part of your body. Yeah. And if you're not, if you lack imagination, just do that. Mm-hmm. And by the end of that, you, you'll be back. Yeah. Where And that separation of between you and your body and your sensations is gone. Yeah. And they really help when you're unwell, jangled, rattled, busy, tired, yeah. sad. Yeah whatever. So I'm a big one for having that. And I think that helps people start a home practice. Mm. So as a teacher, giving people something that they can routinely do might start them off at home. Right. And then they can say, okay, well, I did that every day at home. And then that, that starts you. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what would you say is, um, what do you aspire to? Like, what's the future of mm. your, your yoga in your life? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's a good question. So this year, I've got my yoga for older grown-ups, mm-hmm. little three-day training, and I'm going to do a yoga for mental health three-day training. Yeah. And I've written them and put a ton of stuff into them, so I'm psyched. i got the manuals. Well, they're in revision at the moment, but yeah. I'm not going to revise them for the whole year once I've printed them. Because I, <laughs> I, I, it's too to. easy to do yeah. it. Yeah. Once you learn something new, and, you do it. Yeah, even. and I keep trying to do that, and that's yeah. that's too much. They don't need that. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to travel a lot this year. So I'm going to yeah. go to you know, Adelaide and Perth and maybe Manila and Japan and yeah. Jakarta to see what it feels like to get the work out there in that way. Yeah. And then I'm going to really do a reflection at the end of the year and go, I love teaching in Japan and I have for years mm-hmm. and I know it's very rewarding and it's made, I love Japan and I, I love mm-hmm. the translator I work with, Emmy. Emi is fantastic. I and, about oh, that. she's just beautiful. Yeah. And I've had other, I mean, I work with Kanako Yajima, other people who are understand me and work with me. I'm not easy to translate for. Yeah, I've bet. made people cry. In Japanese too. Well, I'm really verbal and quick. Yeah. And, um, oh, and yes, then I okay. use lots of metaphors and I, oh. and I also tell stupid jokes, which she edits. She's like, oh, right. I'm not telling that one because you'll look like an idiot. Yeah. So it's, so it's lovely to work with people you know, but it's yeah. also lovely to have fun. Yeah. Because it's lonely sometimes. But I'm going to assess that and say, okay, was it satisfying to get the work out? Was it worth flying? Yeah. Or did just people come to me in Lennox Head? Yeah. Because I frankly get it probably not the most. Teaching my older yoga for older grown-ups course last year was probably one of the most satisfying things I've ever done. Oh, wow. To get... 20 people in a room yeah. who want my work yeah. that I, that is my synthesis of everything I've ever learned. Yeah. And that's the only way it's my work because otherwise it's all secondhand. Yeah. But, and they're, and they're interested in my stuff yeah. and, and what I'm interested in. And they're also incredibly capable too. Like yeah. a lot of them are really long-term teachers with a lot to contribute. I just had a ball. That it sounds was, fantastic. It was amazing. Yeah. It was so nourishing and, and wonderful. Yeah. So, and I teach my weekly class. I love my people. I love it. And I have a ball. So And they love you. They definitely do. Yeah, we have, we have fun. Yeah. And I, so do I need more than that? And I think what, you know, it's easy when you look at the celebrity world or the... Yeah. Even this, I thought, you know, with a podcast, it's like, 
oh, what do I have to say that anyone has to say? But yeah. frankly, I've never had such a fun conversation in my yeah, life. Yeah, so, me either. So like, oh. I'm in it for that and yeah. for that collaboration. But you have to keep reflecting on what's enough. Yeah. And what sustains you? And I mean, sustaining me is also my friends and my family and my swimming the bay and, um, you know, things that in this area and stuff yeah. that I am really satisfied with and happy. So I have to be careful not to be trying too big for my boots, but I love sharing the work. Yeah. Wow. And you're doing it in, a, in an amazing way. And I'm, I, I can't even tell you how grateful I am that you have agreed to do this with me because I, I'm just as excited as you are about sharing it, you know, in this way. This is kind of an interesting and different way to be sharing way. it, you know. I'm it's an noticing. amazing thing to discover. Yeah. And what I love about it is because we're such new friends, yep. this is not us regurgitating a conversation no. we've had before. So that's really even, exciting. Like even to true. tell my own history, yeah. when you're asked questions in a certain way, you have revelations while you're telling it. And I think we've already hit probably the 50 subject mark in the things that we want to talk about yeah, later. Yeah, for sure. Because it's so fertile. Yeah. So for that own sake, conversations are so exciting. And to yep. find, to collaborate and find friends is it's, I'm thrilled. Me too. Yeah. And I just want to thank you for this because it's been a fantastic, yet another fantastic conversation and super, it, it's just been wonderful to, to hear where you've come from. And it's been amazing to be listened to and, and, and <laughs> ask questions of such a quality. It's so, it's so, it's just lovely. Very yeah. nourishing. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. Until our next one. Yeah. We just namaste. By yeah, that. namaste. <laughs> Until the next one, my friend. Maria was truly determined to keep the conversation going and right up until the time that she died. And because of that, I have yet to release episodes of conversations that Maria and I had before she passed away that I'll be releasing in the coming weeks, which means that we have the opportunity to continue being the beneficiaries of her insight and wisdom. And so I invite you to join me to listen into those conversations and perhaps to gain some uh, nugget of goodness for your life, as I know Maria would want you to. And so as always, I do also want to thank you for listening now and any time in the past that you've listened to us, for supporting us, for your kindness, for your thoughts. Uh, for your support during this challenging time and for loving Maria and her work as long as you have. Namaste. Namaste.